0: Welcome back to Psychic Crime, and I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And as always, I just want to thank you for listening. Uh, I'm so appreciative to have this many people. Um, I Like every single time that I start an episode, um, I think all the people who are listening around the world, I tell you every single time that I never thought I would be doing this this long. I always just assumed it would be some family members who would listen, and that would be it. So... Like always, I just greatly appreciate having you guys listen and um, just like to thank you and have you ask you to please keep returning. Um, I have started streaming on Twitch under Dumber Than a Sack of Hair, uh, Dumber Than a Sack of Hair also on YouTube. I put the feeds up every once in a while. I do dumber crime videos over on YouTube. I am working on the bracket style tournament for dumb crimes in the U.S. to see if anybody can dethrone Florida Man as the dumbest criminals. So um, that is in progress. We still have merch in the merch store. We are going to get some new stuff up. So there is a lot of stuff out there and going on uh, to say thank you. The Patreon, um, we're going to put more new content up. Um, So just thank you. I greatly appreciate it. As always, this week, we are going to look at kids who kill. It is not a common occurrence, but it is one that has been greatly um, studied. Um, Kids who murder their peers tend to express poorly reasoned motivations. Some kids who kill may be vulnerable to social forces that present murder as a potent experience. Kids who kill often believe the violent assault will enhance their lives in some way. Recently, cases have popped into the news involving children who purposefully killed someone their own age for extraordinarily trivial reasons. With all the glamour attached to killers in the media, we shouldn't be surprised that some kids regard murder as a viable goal or a route to achieve something. These acts are different from those that school shooters perpetrate. Here I'm going to go over some of the reasons for murder that kids have made. And these are usually uh, murder for personal gain. Uh, Number one is payback or revenge. In Florida, last year in October, a boy at the age of 17 and two two girls, one was 17, one was 16, were charged with first degree murder. They had attacked Dwight Grant, 18, A surveillance video showed the two older kids assaulted him with a knife and a sword. One of the younger girls had lured him into a trap with the promise of sex. Apparently the girls were helping the boy punish Grant over his involvement with his ex-girlfriend. So, prowess with malice. So basically your ability to be intimidating or scary. In Brazil, in August, Reyesa Nunes Borges wanted to know if she was capable of becoming a psychopath. That's a, that's a big one with kids just testing the water to see if they can even do it. She seemed to equate the disorder with being a killer. So psychopathy and murder. And that is a mistake that Hollywood makes. Not all psychopaths are murderers. Not all sociopaths are murderers. And so that is a very, very Hollywood um, mistake and interpretation of psychopathy. Her test was to kill someone. She selected her friend, Ariana Barba Loriana de Oliveira, because the 18-year-old was petite and could easily be subdued. With two male friends, Borges planned the act. They would play a specific murder-themed song. Then one of the men, the males, would snap his fingers to launch the attack. Borges invited Ariana to meet them for an outing. She accepted. Her body was found seven days later, strangled and stabbed. Borges apparently had failed to strangle the girl who'd put up a fight, but another member of the gang stabbed her. Since the 90s, we've amassed a lot of information about children who are at risk for developing into psychopaths. Among the traits of concern are chronic deception, callousness, cruelty, manipulativeness, grandiosity, so believing you are more important than you really are, and impulsivity. With more media attention to psychopathy and psychopaths that makes them seem clever and even at times heroic we see more and more kids like Borges aspiring to be one so to be perfectly clear being a psychopath is not something you can become it is a mental illness and it is something really that you are born with you can't be In in some cases, you can become more of a psychopath because there is a scale to psychopathy, but you don't become one if you aren't already. Um, In Britain in 2016, a 14-year-old girl made a list of people she wanted to kill. She lured a friend to a secluded spot and stabbed her. The friend escaped. People who knew the girl reported her obsession with Ted Bundy. Among her Google searches before the attack were, How to Feel No Guilt and how far in is a heart, and how to quickly kill someone with a knife. Professor Isil Wieding's group carried out twin studies that suggested there's a strong genetic component to traits that she labeled as callous and unemotional, which is the core of psychopathy. Many people believe psychopaths are devoid of empathy, and since they can't empathize with people, they do not have the ability to behave Uh, like normal people in society, and many times they just mimic emotions, feelings, and behaviors that they see in other people. In the same way that some of us are more susceptible to heart disease, Vidin believes these children are more vulnerable to environmental influences that trigger antisocial outcomes. Uh, Personal dislike or disapproval. When Skylar Niece, this was a very, very, very big story, the Skylar Niece story. When Skylar Niece, who was 16, went missing from West Virginia in July of 2012, a surveillance video showed her entering a silver sedan. Police learned that two of her closest friends, Sheila Eddy and Rachel Schoff, had admitted to dropping her off just before she disappeared. One had driven a silver car. Detectives used their discovery of the surveillance footage to pressure the girls shaw finally admitted she'd taken skylar to an isolated spot just to kill her the reason they didn't like her and they just didn't want to be friends anymore what happened to just tell somebody i don't want to be your friend Do you know how many people told me that they didn't want to be my friend when i was in high school i legit just walked down the hall and got a new friend it's not that difficult just stop being friends greed are personal gains three boys swung a hammer a hatchet and a rock to kill jason sweeney in pennsylvania in 2003 They wanted the money he had just been paid. Two of the boys were 15. Justina Morley, however, was the mastermind. She'd seductively lured Sweeney to an isolated spot for the attack. She'd also chastised the boys when they initially abandoned the plan. She also group hugged all three after Sweeney's broke over Sweeney's broken body. Morley's post-crime correspondence with her cohorts displayed shocking comments. I'm cold-hearted, death-worshipping bitch, she said who survives by feeding off the weak and lonely. I lure them in and then I crush them. Her motive ha- appears to have been darker than just financial gain. So this actually inspired an episode of Criminal Minds um, where if I remember correctly, Brian Ashton Green played the older brother of a boy who was convinced by a girl to lure somebody in and kill them so they can rob them of the money. They just got paid for their job. Um, and the last one is em- delusional emulation. Ed, an imaginary friend, allegedly allured 16-year-old Steven Miles to kill. Miles also embraced a fictional hero, Dexter. Dexter from the TV show. He's a serial killer slash vigilante. The boy fatally stabbed his girlfriend and used his tree surgeon father's tools to remove her w- limbs. He wrapped her parts in cling wrap, like Dexter, and placed them in trash bags. Although the court recognized the media influence on the assault, Miles got no past for diminished capacity. However, some kids who plan to harm others as they've seen it done in fiction are blind to the line between fiction and reality. If they're lonely, isolated, and angry, they might hone in on the satisfaction some violent characters enjoy from exercising this power, or they might simply adopt a role in the fictional scenario. We saw this in 2015 when 12-year-olds Morgan Geyser and Anissa Weir stabbed their friend Peyton Lautner 19 times to appease this imaginary Slenderman. We've actually covered the Slenderman, and Slenderman was actually a fully adue situation. Uh, one of the girls was suffering from schizophrenia and actually was delusionally, be- this is a delusional emulation. She actually delusionally believed that Slender Man was real. And the other girl who had borderline um, intelligence uh, went along with her and started to believe. And that is what Folia Do is, is when one person has a delusion and another person begins to share the delusion with them. So this does fall under delusional emulation, but technically, under the diagnostic manual was Folia Dew. Um, and it what and the reason we know now that it was Folia Dew is because Geyser was not actually diagnosed with Folia Dew until after the murders. So I found multiple They have found multiple examples with each of the five motivations. Immature adolescent brains certainly plays a role in predatory, impulsive, and aggressive behavior, but it's also evident that some kids observe cultural representations that flatter immoral enormity of murder. The desire for power is a great driver. So, and this is part of the reason that they do not uh, diagnose children as psychopaths or sociopaths or with any type of personality, normally they don't diagnose children with personality disorders, because your brain is still developing. And if people always ask about the type of bullying they see in movies and TV shows set in the 80s, and that did happen. um, And a lot of times, People will say, "Well, that's psychopath." It is psychopathic sometimes. Sometimes the level of bullying and harassment that teenagers engage in, and if you watch a show like Euphoria, a lot of people are shocked and dumbfounded. You shouldn't be. Um, I feel like the level of debauchery may change over time, or the type of debauchery changes over time, but the level doesn't. I feel like it's the same kind of things that you were probably up to, but just a different manner, and it's more the manner, not exactly what they're doing that is so shocking. And like I said, with an undeveloped, immature brain, what happens is yes, a lot of the bullying and tactics and things that they, they and, and you're hyper aggressive when you are younger and you're a teenager, you are completely driven by instant gratification. And so when the predatory, impulsive, aggressive behavior that comes with adolescence kicks in, doesn't justify the behavior, but it is a reason that a lot of bullies, teenage bullies do such extreme, horrible stuff because their brains haven't processed the fact that it's not just that it's wrong, like many of them may know it's wrong, but that just because it it feeds and ends to a mean, like I said, they're driven by instant gratification, just because it fills a need in that moment doesn't offset the damage that it's doing it doesn't make it right or give it a justification and remember when you're a teenager everything is the end of the world because you're so young and you've you've experienced so little so things that should be important and should have meaning tend to not and things that are very minuscule tend to carry more meaning so we're going to look at two very specific cases now a little bit more in depth First is Eric M. Smith. He was born on January 22, 1980. Smith enjoyed spending time with his grandparents, Red and Edie Wilson. Called Red because red hair, just like uh, Eric. Red said he would always come in and give us hugs and kisses. He liked being a clown. However, Smith was diagnosed by a defense attorney with intermittent explosive disorder a mental disorder causing individuals to be violent and under, unpredictable. But the prosecution's expert said it was super rare and it is rarely seen in someone Smith's age. Yes, intermittent explosive disorder, um, it's very rarely ever diagnosed. Um, it does come out a lot as a defense because it's so rare and it's so difficult to diagnose. And it, it, it's a lot like schizophrenia where it does not come up in children. Like early onset schizophrenia, usually hits in very late teens we're talking 17 18 19 or early 20s um and that this disorder is once again it's not something that you can really diagnose with a teenager because hyperaggression is part of puberty unfortunately and sometimes you can't tell if a kid is the normal hyperaggressive for his personality or if they are suffering from an intermittent explosive disorder so To be perfectly honest, the defense attorney that diagnosed him is actually being kind of unethical because it is usually the standard in the psychiatric community to not diagnose anyone under the age of 18 with this sweeping of a personality disorder. Smith was subjected to extensive medical testing from specialists on both sides. They examined his brain function, his hormone levels, and found nothing to explain his violent behavior. According to court documents, Smith was seen as a loner who often was tormented by bullies for his protruding lower set ears, thick glasses, red hair, and freckles. He sounds like my nephew, to be honest. Um, on August second, minus the violence, on August second, nineteen ninety-three, when Smith was thirteen years old, he was riding his bike home from summer camp in a local day camp. After being told he had to leave due to bad behavior, who does this? this is how you can tell that this is definitely not current in the 90s kicking a kid out of camp and making him take himself home even though you're kicking him out for bad behavior what in your right mind thinks a kid who's being kicked out of camp for bad behavior is going to go directly home wow and four-year-old Derek Robbie was walking alone to go to the same camp Smith saw Robbie and lured him into a nearby wooded area There Smith strangled him and dropped a large rock on the boy's head. The cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma to the head, contributing to asphyxia. At around 11 a.m., Robbie's mother, Doreen, went to the park to pick up her child, only to find that Robbie had never arrived. After four hours of investigation, Robbie's body was found. Now, obviously, because this had to do with a minor, this case made national headlines and since he was only 13 and the victim itself was four. On August 8, 1993, Smith confessed to his mother that he had in fact killed the child. The Smith family informed law enforcement the same night. In his 2014 parole hearing, Smith said that he had confessed that he took his rage out on Robbie over the fact that he had been bullied by older children at his school and also by his father and sisters. Smith said that he had in fact sodomized him with a stick, just to make sure that he was dead. On August 16th, 1994, he was convicted of second degree murder and sentenced to a maximum term that was then available for juveniles um, and a minimum that was a minimum of nine years in prison. While in jail, he did write an apology letter to the family, which he read on public television. At the end of the statement, Smith stated that he cannot bear the thought of walls, razor wire and steel metal bars for the rest of his life. He also apologized to Derek Robbie in the interview. Smith was held in a juvenile facility for three years and was then transferred to an open prison for young adults. In 2001, he was transferred to the Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemora, New York, a maximum security prison. Those of you who are not aware, Dannemora had a prison break. It was a huge deal. As of May 3, 2016, the New York State Department of Corrections had housed him at Collins Correctional Facility, a medium security prison for male inmates in Erie County, New York. On April 26, 2019, he was listed as incarcerated at Gowanda Correctional Facility, which was a medium security prison located close, which is co located, like almost adjoining, with Collins Correctional. On November 30th, 2019, he was um, incarcerated at Woodburn Correctional in Sullivan County. Smith has been had been died, denied parole 10 times since 2002. Uh, the most recent was January 2020. After the failed 2012 hearing the parole board cited a concern for public safety in its decision and Robbie's parents opposed his release. At the hearing, he told the parole bard he would not return to Savona if released and he would go to a shelter or a halfway house instead. Now, this is the problem people have with giving life sentences to children. He was 13 when he committed this crime. Okay, so the idea of keeping him in jail while he's an adult, he is probably a completely different person. He's grown up quite a bit. Um, in October, 2021, He was finally granted parole after 27 years in jail. He was scheduled to be released on November 17th, but his release was delayed to him not having an approved address. He was finally released this year um, on February 1st, 2022. Now, another case that is shockingly similar was Joshua Earl Patrick Phillips. He was born in Allentown, Pennsylvania on March 17th, 1984 to Stephen Melissa Phillips. Steve was a drug addict and an alcoholic and was incredibly violent to Josh and Melissa, who both reported living in fear of him. Steve imposed strict rules on his son and got angry if he had other children in the house when he was not around and particularly disliked girls. Melissa said she never understood why her husband had such a problem with girls. In November, 1998, Phillips was 14 years old and living with his family in Jacksonville, Florida. Neighbors described Phillips as quiet and friendly. According to Maddie Clifton's mother, Phillips and her daughter were friends and she never had any reason to be afraid of him. Phillips had no arrests or history of violence prior to the murder. His school teacher said he was a popular student who did not stand out. She described him as fun and silly. According to Phillips on November 3rd, 1998, he was home alone when Maddie Clifton, who lived across the road from him, came to his house asking him to come play and, he, and play baseball with him. Phillips agreed, even though he was not allowed to have friends over while his parents weren't home. As the two were playing baseball, Phillips accidentally hit the ball into Clifton's eye, causing her to bleed, cry, and scream. He panicked, knowing his father would be home soon, and was desperately afraid of his reaction. So he grabbed, dragged Clifton into the house, saying that, The clothing came off of her lower body as he did this. He hit her again with the baseball bat to stop the screaming before putting her under the base of his bed. The bed, by the way, was a waterbed. When Steve returned home, Phillips interacted with him for a period of time before going back to his room. When Phillips discovered that Clifton was still alive and moaning under the bed, he removed the mattress, cut her throat, and stabbed her in the chest seven times with a knife from a Leatherman tool kit. Clifton's disappearance was reported around 5 p.m. Police and volunteers searched for Clifton for six days. Phillips participated in the search. He later stated that he spent the following week living in denial, saying, I was putting myself in a fantasy world, that nothing had happened. That was my defense mechanism for everything when I was a kid. I never made the decision, so I ignored it. I just did. On November 10th, Melissa Phillips went to her son's room and noticed a wet spot on the floor. She searched the room and found Clifton's body, immediately leaving the house to report it to the police. Phillips was arrested the same day at school and confessed within hours. Prosecutors disputed some parts of his story. State Attorney Harry Harry Shorstein suggested the murder may have been sexually motivated, saying that Phillips had talked about sex with both Maddie Clifton and her older sister. The autopsy found no evidence of sexual assault, though prosecutors er, argued the lack of dirt and sand on Clifton's body did not support Phillips' assertion that her clothes came off as he dragged her into the home. Prosecutors also noted that no blood was found in the backyard or on the baseball that Phillips had said struck Clifton and argued this did not support his version of events. Look, I really my issue here is that they immediately jumped to this had to be sexually motivated and even though there clearly is no evidence of sexual assault nothing happened in that manner to this child and so like this happens quite a bit whenever something happens to a female child they automatically assume it had to be sexually motivated but they didn't do that with the other boy i find that with the boy in the other case. I find that incredibly strange that whenever a female child is hurt, anytime a female's hurt, they always assume it's because of sex. But whenever a man or a male child is hurt, that's the last thing they the last thing they think about. And I find that incredibly both interesting and incredibly sad and devastating because you are not fully investigating things to the best of your ability when you do things like that. So Phillips was tried as an adult. The trial was moved from Duval County to Polk County over concerns about the publicity in Jacksonville. I lived in Jacksonville. Yeah, the publicity would have killed this case. Phillips' lawyer, Richard D. Nichols, did not call a single witness for the defense. A move the prosecutors later said was surprising and risky. Nichols intended to base much of the defense on a closing argument, where he stated Clifton's death was an act that began as an accurate accident and deteriorated into panic that bordered on madness. According to Phillips, Nichols never attempted to question him over the events of the murder and only played chess with him and then when visiting him in prison prior to the trial. Melissa Phillips disagreed with Nichols' strategy, though Steve insisted on letting the lawyer do as he pleased. Nichols discouraged Phillips' parents from allowing him to testify. Accordingly, Phillips never spoke during his trial. The trial started on July 6, 1999 and lasted only two days. That's horrible. That's a really, really bad. Like even if you don't call him, you could have called a psychiatrist to talk about his state of mind as a child. I mean, even if you're not going to try and get him acquitted, like you could at least show mitigating circumstances, something to show like his mindset. The fact that he's so unbothered that he's sitting there playing chess and chilling that should tell you something about his mindset, that he does not understand the totality of the situation he's in. And I think very likely if the jury understood that he really was not comprehending what he did or the totality of the situation, it probably would have changed the um, outcome. Not, he may, not that I'm saying he wouldn't have gotten convicted, but it probably would have impacted his sentence. He was, it just took them two hours. That's really, really bad to convict him of first degree murder. He was later sentenced to life imprisonment without the impossibility of without the possibility of parole, which once again is horrible. He's fourteen. Giving a fourteen year old life in jail, I feel is an egregious, egregious abuse of power. He was not eligible for the death penalty only because he was under sixteen. So you better believe had he been sixteen, they would have tried to give him the death penalty at the age of six at the at the age of sixteen. During the trial, the defense attempted to introduce scans from a neurologist showing bilateral lesions on the front lobe of his brain, which are associated with panic and impaired judgment. While the prosecution wanted to discuss evidence, Phillips had looked at pornography. Wow. The judge, however, ruled both pieces of evidence inadmissible. That's actually really good. Um, On I mean, the stuff about the lesions in his brain, that's an unproved thing, that lesions cause violence and impair your ability to make reasonable decisions. People get brain lesions for all kinds of reasons. A lot of them are benign. Uh, So yeah, that's a good good ruling that it shouldn't be admissible as far as the pornography that has been tried over and over and over again on both sides it's it's used by the prosecution to prove that someone is a bad person because their play especially in the south um and and they did it on a case in texas introduced evidence of finding pornography because they know that an evangelical jury a jury of you know southern baptist or evangelical Christians are going to be more disturbed by the fact that they have pornography than any testimony from a psychiatrist. And the reality is there is zero link between between pornography and violence. It has been disproven time and time again, but that is not even what they're trying to show. They're trying to influence the jury and make them think that this is a bad kid just because they look at porn tons of people watch porn and never lay a hand on a single person. So it's a strategy that is used by the prosecution in order to make you think that someone is a bad person inherently. But it's also a strategy used by the defense because they try and say, oh look, porn rotted their brain. They're just emulating what they see in porn. They watch very violent things. So on both sides of the coin is used and that's why a lot of times it gets tossed out because I mean, you can't really call it an affirmative defense if it gets used by both the prosecution and the defense regularly. Um, So in 2012, the Supreme Court of the United States um, made a ruling, and that ruling was Miller v. Alabama. It ruled that sentencing juveniles to mandatory life in prison without parole is unconstitutional. So in November of 2015, Phillips' attorneys, um, used it as a basis to file a resentencing hearing. In September 2016, his attorney successfully appealed to the court and he was granted a new sentencing hearing, which was held in June 2017. At the hearing, Clifton's mother requested that his sentence be upheld. In November 2017, Phillips was resentenced to life, but is eligible for resentencing again in 2023, so next year. In December 2019, the Florida First District of Appeal upheld a life sentence saying it will be reviewed again and could be modified in 2023 based on demonstrated maturity and rehabilitation. Phillips subsequently appealed to the Supreme Court of Florida, who turned down his request in June 2020. Is it is customary? Do they do not explain their reasons for declining to hear the case? So it's not that he lost a Supreme Court appeal. It was just they just declined it. Um, the reality is he should have been resentenced. The fact that they upheld a lifetime sentence without, that's how they got around breaking the new, uh, cause it's a precedent set. And that's how they got around the precedent is by telling him that they would resentence him, um, basically giving him the possibility of parole. So by putting the possibility of parole on there, um, that's how they get around giving him a life sentence. So as long as he has the possibility of parole then technically he doesn't have a life sentence and that's how they get around it. I still think it's splitting hairs. I still think that they're condemning someone who committed a crime as a child, uh, probably out of panic, um, to a life, in, to a life in, in jail. And that's insane and it makes no sense. Um, and that's a big part of the problem. I've talked before in here about hang states who use different type of murder statutes in order to give people extraordinarily large amounts of time that they do not deserve. Um, And I think this falls in there. It's insane to give someone who commits a crime in their 13 or 14 a life sentence. Many people when they're 13 or 14 do not have a very set moral compass. Their, Their reasoning for things being right or wrong is incredibly based on instant gratification it's okay for me to lie because i'm gonna get this thing that i really want it's okay for me to steal because i'm gonna be like everybody else and no one will bully me those are very short-sighted reasons to compromise your moral integrity but very young kids don't see it that way when you're an adult and you're older especially when you're in your mid to late 20s is when it starts to kick in moral integrity is not something that should be flexible and that These are your values. This is what you stick by. And if you miss out on things, you miss out on things. If people tease you for it, they tease you for it. But it shouldn't be flexible. And it it takes time. It takes time for you to grow into that, to understand who you are, and to be able to not be ruled by your more volatile emotions. And so I do think it's incredibly horrible that, and it is draconian for us, As this, you know, this first world country that we're supposed to be, to be putting juveniles, to be putting children in prison the entirety of their life. And it's also a horrible tax on our system and the resources of our citizens. Um, So that was a look at child murderers. Um, We looked at the case of Joshua Phillips and the case of Eric Smith next week we are going to look into the tinder swindler um i wanted to look into this and i wanted to go over this case because obviously romance scams are nothing new they've been around forever but this man took it to a whole another level by swindling multiple women at once out of tens of millions of dollars. And so we wanted to look into the psychology behind someone who would do something like this and also give you some tips and tricks on how to look out for people like this and avoid being taken in. So in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.